I'm Hugh Ronzani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome. Welcome to, to Tales of Baroque. Each episode you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world, its characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. So, wherever you are, sit back, relax, and enjoy discovering more about Poet of the Violin, featuring Baroque violinist Layla Shaikh. Hello, Alan. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Hugh. Now, there is a lot of ground to cover, as per usual. Brandenburg programs are, are full of all sorts of uh, things and, and wonderful music to boot. Uh, we have another fabulous violinist joining us for this series, Leila Shayeg. Um, have, you, have you had the pleasure of seeing Leila perform previously? No, I haven't seen her live before, so this will be quite a treat. She is, as you know, very accomplished and very well known in Europe, but this will be her first time coming out to Australia. So if you haven't bought a ticket already, uh, listeners, please do get on the phone and book a ticket or get online um, because she's more than worth the price of admission. And in fact, some of our senior members of the orchestra are really looking forward to this masterclass that she's going to be doing while she's in Sydney. Yeah, and that's a, a huge tribute really to her standing that... Um that seasoned professionals really want to, to learn from her about her approach. Now, a lot was going on at the time that this music uh, comes from. We've got composers that are more familiar to listeners in Handel and Bach represented on the program, but two other perhaps less familiar names in Zelenka and Leclerc. Give us an overview of what was happening in Europe at, at the time. Yeah, uh, all this music, um, so first thing I guess is to, to set the scene by saying that the music all comes from pretty much the same period, uh, which is to say the first half of the 18th century. So it's the period that we conventionally think of as the late Baroque. It's the era of uh, J.S. Bach and Handel, Vivaldi as well, uh, and some of those famous names. But uh, also there are so many good musicians during this period who we get to hear less of, or at least less often. And Zelenka and Leclerc both come into that category. Uh, and it gives us also an interesting kind of geographical spread because we're hearing music which has its origins in uh, Bohemia, um, Austria, uh, influences of Italy, France, uh, music in England with Handel and so forth. So it's a period of, uh, of great um, influence and crossover between different styles. So <clears throat> what's going on in the period um, we, we tend to think of music as being kind of a thing in itself and separate from what else is happening uh, in society at any particular time. But of course, it's always influenced by that. You know, music is just one of the aspects of, of any society at any period. And in this period, there was quite a lot of conflict going on. There was a major war across Western Europe, uh, the War of the Spanish Succession, which uh, continued from the end of the 17th into the early part of the 18th century and pitted uh, France and uh, to some extent Spain against the Austrian Empire. Uh, so we have a lot of pushing back and forward of boundaries and uh, of people moving across those with a great deal of difficulty. Uh, it also meant there was a lot of financial pressure on the major 
states and cities which influenced the kind of music making they could afford to make and uh, but also meant that there were occasions of celebration and uh, memorial and so forth which also produced important um, pieces of music and, and it's incredible to think how uh, obviously we we have a, an idea of Europe in our minds today, in our contemporary minds today, that's quite different to the map of Europe as it was known in the, the start of the 18th century. That's right. Um, we just have to remind ourselves that, for example, there was no country of Italy at the time. It was a whole set of uh, small states. And similarly with Germany, there was no country of Germany. It was a kind of geographical area with a uh, to some extent shared uh, language, but politically it was a whole lot of small uh, and medium and large states, which uh, most of which were part of the Holy Roman Empire connected with uh, Austria, but still politically pretty independent and at times fighting wars with each other. Uh, so, for example, J.S. Bach lived in Leipzig, which was uh, under the rule of the Kingdom of Saxony. Um, but uh, the King of Saxony also had connections with Poland and so forth. Um, Bohemia, where Zelenka came from, corresponds more or less with the Czech Republic today. Uh, that was at the time part of the Austrian Empire, uh, So, uh, but still a, a distinct area. So some of the names have changed. Some of the, plenty of the, the borders and boundaries have changed. Um, and yet there are these traditions uh, of culture and language and music making, which have in many cases come down to us today uh, through a continuous line of, um, of cultural life, I guess we could say, despite those changes. And so going back to the, the actual figures involved in this program, the, the music composers them, themselves, um, starting with Zelenka, tell us about who he is and, and, um, and his musical background. Yeah, he was born in uh, 1679, so he was just uh, six years older than Bach and Handel, who were both born in 1685, and he came from a small town near Prague in Bohemia, which is now Czech Republic. Um, we don't know much about his early life and training, but he spent uh, most of his career in Dresden, which was then the capital of the Kingdom of Saxony and one of the really uh, wealthy um, cities of Europe and it had some of the most vibrant cultural life. It had uh, the finest orchestra in Europe um, during the first part of the 18th century and so it drew in many of the top musicians and Zelenka was one of those. He was actually hired initially as the double bass player for the orchestra uh, but he was also an important composer, wrote a great deal of church music for the Catholic court chapel of, uh, of Dresden. Um, and uh, also a certain amount of chamber music. And so we're going to hear a piece uh, which is kind of in that category for seven instruments. We don't know exactly for what occasion it was written, but it seems to have been associated with a trip that he made to Prague, back, so back to near his hometown, uh, on the occasion of the uh, coronation of the Emperor Charles VI of Austria as King of Bohemia. It was one of his subsidiary titles. Uh, so it must have been a nice opportunity for Zelenka to get to go home. But while he was on the trip, he seems to have been commissioned to write the piece that we're going to hear. So it's just a, a nice example of the ways that music and the uh, politics and the court uh, um, not intrigues so much, but the the kind of the activities and in a way the propaganda activities of the courts 
uh, intersect with music because there are so many special occasions for which particular pieces of music could be commissioned. So obviously this commission has happened uh, and we don't know exactly all the details about why or how or, or, or uh, for whom it may have been written, but it's certainly at this time there's that growing middle class and there's this, this growing uh, need for music beyond just the, the music that the nobility enjoyed. Um, so perhaps uh, w- was there some sort of reasoning or, or how is it that a piece like this ended up surviving until today? Um, you would have had to be quite accomplished to perform this music at the time, no? Yeah, it certainly is music for professionals to play. It's not uh, chamber music in the sense of, you know, domestic music that people would play at home. Um, And so it probably was commissioned by uh, an aristocratic patron, we would imagine. Uh, As you say, though, there was increasing wealth amongst some of the middle class that starts to become more important in the latter part of the 18th century. But Uh, In the case of J.S. Bach, for example, when he is working in Leipzig, it's a city that doesn't have its own local uh, prince. It's a trading city and most of its wealth comes from the trade fairs and being at the crossroads of two of the major trade routes, uh, north, south and east, west across Europe. Uh, And so that kind of um, backing that comes, in his case, through the church uh, is financed to a considerable extent by that growth of the middle class and uh, the wealth that the trade brought. So we have all kinds of different influences. In the case of the Zelenka, I think it probably was a commission from an aristocrat because they, those, those are the kinds of people who would have been involved in the festivities around the coronation of uh, Charles VI as Emperor of, uh, as King of Bohemia and, and so on. Uh, And particularly in Eastern Europe at that time, it was mainly aristocrats who had the resources to commission this kind of music. But it does show that uh, for wealthy aristocrats who were keen on music, they were willing to put their money forward and to commission new pieces and often very entertaining ones. So if we focus on the Zelenka for a minute, it is really a a fun piece. And it's interesting because Zelenka himself was described as being quite a serious kind of man. He was uh, said to be um, humble, quiet uh, sort of fellow who was very respectable and so on. Uh, And yet in this piece, I think we hear a great sense of humor coming through because the, the title of it is Hypochondria. And it doesn't mean quite the same as that does in modern usage, uh, where we tend to think of, of hypochondria being uh, the, the, feeling, the fear of getting sick when actually there's nothing much wrong with you. At the time, it was considered to be a genuine illness, and it had symptoms of uh, stomach pains and headaches and uh, all those kinds of miscellaneous sort of symptoms that uh, you couldn't quite put your finger on, but it was kind of a fashionable disease. There was a doctor at the time who said that he thought a third of his patients were suffering from what they thought they were suffering from this condition. Um, so it's a, a great subject on which to write a descriptive musical piece, which tries to capture the feeling of being sick. And he does it very cleverly. Now, I'm trying to imagine if I'd have been given that brief as a composer myself, how I would have maybe gone about doing it. But um, but perhaps also tell us about the form and then how this music and these musical ideas are encapsulated, because I think the choice of instrumentation is important here too. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think there's a whole lot of, of things at play here. The first is that it opens with uh, a movement in the style of a French overture. 
And so that's interesting in itself. Bohemian composer writing for a, a German orchestra playing in uh, Bohemia, um, but in a French style or a sort of French style. So the French overture had become very popular and associated with nobility and, uh, and the theatre in the late 17th century. And by the time this was written in the uh, a bit further into the 18th century, it had become an established genre, which you could use for other purposes other than to be the overture to an opera or, or a, a ballet and so forth. And so he's using that form. Um, but uh, what he does is to then add to the usual strings, uh, two oboes and a bassoon. So that gives him more colors to play with. And that probably reflects the fact that oboe bands had become a big thing, particularly in aristocratic uh, and royal households just in this period. So where previously you'd have a string orchestra modeled on the string orchestra of the King of France. Again, there's the French influence. Then particularly in uh, Central Europe, oboe bands became a big thing where you would have an ensemble of oboes and bassoons, uh, which were louder than the strings and could play for outdoor entertainment could even be military marching bands. Uh, and so with really good players on those instruments, there's the opportunity to write for them in an expressive way and to kind of bring them indoors, as it were, into sophisticated chamber music. And so he makes great use of those instruments to colour the, the sound of this piece. Um, and, uh, and they do add uh, in a lovely way to the, <laughs> the sense of the sort of seasickness of the, the music that he gives us. There are several recordings of this Zelenka out in the wilderness, and um, one fabulous one that uh, you've been listening to, Alan, is actually uh, features the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra. Now, there was something in the oboes, the sound of the oboes that you mentioned um, while we were offline. Um, perhaps you could tell us about that and, and, and how sometimes as simple a thing as a choice of reed can make a difference to how music comes across. Yeah, I'm not an oboe player, but uh, I, I did actually grow up playing the, the clarinet, so I, I know that much about reeds. Well, one of the things that, that does make a big difference to the sound of an instrument is uh, particularly with wind instruments. Well, in the case of strings, you know, it depends what kind of strings you have, whether they're gut or metal and so forth, and the kind of bow and the, the shape of it, all of those things affect the sound. And with wind instruments, uh, the things that affect the sound most tend to be the shape of the bore, the, the hole that runs through the inside of the instrument and how that makes it resonate. But in the case of reed instruments like oboes and bassoons, the type of reed you use and the way that you cut the shape of the reed makes a big difference. And so to my ear, I'd, and oboe players may set me straight, but it seems to me that they're probably using wider reeds in this recording, which gives it more of a, a kind of buzzy, earthy uh almost rural kind of sound, which just seems to me to suit this piece very well. And this is again the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra performing the opening lentement from Zelenka's Hypochondrie à sept concertanti in A major.
So as the music uh, continues on in that very stately French manner of a French overture, as it were, maybe you might like to point out to listeners um, what happens with the fugue in this particular in this particular work, because there are really two parts to to this um, this hypochondria uh, set. Um. In the Hippocondrie, so we hear it starting with that stately French overture sound that we're used to hearing so much in French music, and we get a lot also in Bach and Handel and so forth when they borrow that French style. Uh, and after the slow opening, the next section in a French overture is always a faster section with imitation between the parts where they seem to be kind of chasing each other along. And uh, Zelenka does this very well, and some of the fast passages uh, I just love the way that he has the parts kind of interweaving and one going fast and the other slow and so forth. And it just feels like your pulse is racing, you know, like you're feeling really sick and, you, uh, and you, your heart, heart is racing and uh, you're feeling kind of queasy and, and all of that. And the way that he does that with both the speed of the, the movement and also the, uh, the changing of, of key all the time and the, the inflections of key. Uh, that just makes it feel slightly off balance is very very clever and then we get to a moment when suddenly all of the strings together go bang 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 and i, I think what's going on there is the, the poor patient is coughing loudly so um i think for people at the time hearing this you know with that idea of of uh depicting sickness in mind it would have been quite entertaining and, and funny there was a bit of a tradition in bohemia of commissioning composers to write descriptive pieces a bit like this and an example of that is heinrich bieber who we've heard with the orchestra before he went on to be one of the leading musicians in vienna again at the imperial court uh, but while he was in bohemia he was and even afterwards he was commissioned to send back pieces uh, which were in a descriptive style and so we have the wonderful battle piece for example which we've heard the orchestra play before which imitates in a very literal way the the sounds of a battle so this kind of idea of imitating something in a very descriptive way in music was considered uh very it was fashionable and it was uh, and it was considered very entertaining and it still is today well ahead of rehearsals starting uh, i haven't actually heard layla's rendition of this at all but ahead of rehearsal starting um i have had several conversations with her you know via email and all sorts and uh she has a wonderful sense of humor so far as i can tell so she'll be the perfect person to lead something like this which which does actually allow that sort of sense of humor to shine through that's great yeah, because occasionally we do hear pieces played in a very kind of serious, you know, kind of taking themselves a bit too seriously style when actually the piece um, you think underneath, no, that's actually supposed to be funny. So if, uh, if she brings that out, that'll be fantastic. Now, the next piece on the program uh, takes us to a, a wonderful place, but also um, a, a curious place in the history of, of, of jo uh, George Frederick Handel, um, in the sense that the Opus 3 Concerti Grossi was not really something that he himself had conceived of as a, con as a set of concerti, was it not? Uh, that's right, yeah. The, <laughs> um, the scene in London is uh, very different from what we were just talking about in Dresden. Um, it's a commercial city, and although, of course, it had a king and, uh, and a royal court, they didn't uh, directly patronise music in quite the same way that a lot of the continental courts did. Instead, musicians were uh, received royal patronage to write particular pieces. Handel's opera company was supported by the crown, but it wasn't actually a court opera company. Uh, it was essentially a commercial operation with the backing of, of the king. Um, and so uh, 
there's a, a whole industry of music publishing that goes in parallel with this. So whatever you could, uh, where, where if you wrote like Zelenka for a king, then everything that you wrote belonged to the patron and it went straight in the Royal Library. And so didn't, this is one of the reasons why we haven't heard so much about composers like Zelenka and my um, co composer I'm interested in, um, Antonio Caldara is another one who worked at the Imperial Court in Vienna. Uh, very important composers, but we don't know so much about them because they were employed in the court and their music simply didn't get disseminated elsewhere so much. Whereas Handel, working in a more, not a freelance way, but um, in a more commercial operation, shall we say, in London, uh, needed to squeeze every pound that he could out of whatever he was composing. And so there was an incentive for it to be published. But that meant, conversely, that the publishers needed to have a constant supply of music from their top composers to be putting into print and so they could sell it. Uh, and so when Handel was writing pieces for kind of miscellaneous occasions, um, some of those were put together to go into publications. And in the case of the uh, Opus 3 Concerti Grossi, they were actually pieces that Handel had written on miscellaneous occasions for various purposes, not conceived of as a set, and in some cases not even considered uh, conceived as individual whole pieces. They were just sets of movements. The one we're going to hear was actually originally used as interval music for a special performance of his opera Amadigi in 1712. Um, various other pieces in the set were composed for other occasions, put together out of miscellaneous movements that he'd composed for other purposes. And one of the concertos in, published in the set was not even by Handel at all. Uh, it just seemed that the standard thing was to publish them in sets of six. And so the, his publisher, John Walsh, just grabbed whatever he had and, and stuck it in there, though Handel later insisted that for the second edition, they take that spurious one out. But it does mean they're an, an interesting kind of eclectic set of pieces. And even within this one individual piece, which uh, does appear to have been performed as, uh, as a complete um, composition when it was new, it's uh, still made up not in the kind of conventional way of Concerti Grossi, but rather as a set of interesting and varied movements of kinds that you might expect to see somewhere else. Now, why would that be? Well, I think part of it is because the Concerto Grosso as a genre was pretty much out of fashion in Italy, where it, in, where it originated from by the time Handel was writing this. So he was probably picking up on styles of music that he'd heard in Italy when he had been there uh, only um, four or five years earlier. Uh, and so he'd probably heard music by Corelli particularly, who was famous for writing in this style. Um, but uh, so he's keeping it going in England. And in fact, Concerti Grossi continued to be an important genre in England for the next uh, several decades, long, long after they disappeared out of the repertoire elsewhere. So clearly the English, you know, liked this kind of music. Um, but uh, rather than writing it in the way that Corelli would have done with four movements, slow, fast, slow, fast, uh, he puts it together out of a French overture to start instead of an Italian um, style of piece, uh, followed by a slow movement, a fast movement, and then a nice minuet, a dance to finish. Uh, so it's um, and, and it's an eclectic kind of piece, not only in the sense of the different kinds of movements that it has, but also the way that it's orchestrated. So conventionally, a concerto grosso was one which had a kind of leadership group 
of soloists who were the two violins and cello and the continuo who could play by themselves but then be reinforced by the full orchestra so you get the contrast between solo and uh, and full orchestra um, but in this case we only get a bit of that kind of texture and it's in parts of the concerto there's another bit that's almost like an oboe concerto uh, in one movement um, and uh, so we get all of these kind of contrasting sounds, which actually makes it a very interesting, entertaining piece to hear, but not actually what it says on the tin, in a sense of, of being, um, if you knew what a Concerto Grosso of Corelli, for example, was supposed to sound like, you'd get a surprise in hearing this piece. Uh, so with four wonderful movements to choose from, and the fact that we've already heard a, uh, a French overture, Alan, um, I have a, a, a beautiful recording um, for listeners uh, by the Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra, which is um, almost the Canadian uh, synonymous group to, to Brandenburg. They're an incredible ensemble that have um, been so accomplished in, in a lot of the recording that they've done. Is there a particular movement that you'd like to hear today or that you'd like to point out to for listeners? Hmm. Well, we were talking before about the oboe in relation to Zelenka, who wrote uh, for the virtuoso oboists he had available in Dresden. And the second movement of this concerto is a lovely oboe solo, which is a little bit like Vivaldi in style. Um, so uh, I think it would be great to hear a little bit of that, which also provides a contrast with the lively big orchestra sound of the Zelenka. This is Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra playing the third movement, the Allegro from the Concerto Grosso in F Major, Opus 3, Number 4. As the music charges on, Alan, I think it's it's well worth talking about that it's not really just Layla in this series that's a real feature, that the oboes, we've got a fantastic team of oboes available to us and uh, featuring Emma Black, Adam Masters and Kirsten Barry. Oh, fantastic and great to hear three oboes at a time. We very often get one, sometimes two, but you don't often get to hear three Baroque oboes uh, as an ensemble. And I think that again goes to that idea of the oboe band, which was fashionable at the time. You would have uh, so, so many excellent oboists who could play this kind of demanding music uh, is um, an indication of how important that was. Uh, the oboe, as we know it, the Baroque oboe, had been developed not that long before at the French court again. So there's the influence of Louis XIV and the, the court at Versailles. Uh, in the 1680s and 90s, they were doing a lot of work on instrument technology, and that's where we get the Baroque flute, the Baroque oboe, and the Baroque bassoon, all developed around that time in France. So by the time this piece was written uh, in 1712 or so, we think, uh, it is only 20 years or so, 30 years since these instruments have been developed. So they're still pretty new tech. 
Uh, and the fact that you've now got high-level virtuoso players available to play this difficult music uh, is an indication of how quickly they caught on and how important they were. Well, how similar, technically speaking? I mean, I know that you're not a, a wind player per se yourself, Alan, but when you see, for example, the recorder players um, you know, playing that sort of a, a straight uh, bore instrument and then going onto the, the oboe, how much crossover is there with fingerings between these sorts of instruments that we see in the period? Quite a lot because instruments like the recorder and the oboe work in a similar way in terms of the fingering, that it's a long straight bore and you have a series of finger holes. So the way that they work is pretty analogous. It's certainly not the same, uh, but it does mean that it's relatively manageable to swap between them and also uh, with the Baroque flute, the transverse flute. Um, so we often see players doubling on those, uh, our own players of the uh, flute uh, often double on recorders in the orchestra. Not so much on oboes these days, but historically it was pretty common for wind players to be able to swap between different instruments according to what was needed in the piece. And so sometimes you would have in a piece that had a series of different movements or in say an opera score, uh, where you would have different instruments featured in particular movements or arias, uh, the same player would actually be swapping between instruments, which is why you sometimes don't get, say, flutes and oboes in the same, playing at the same time in the same piece, because it's the same person who has to play them, and so they have to swap instruments. Well, uh, some of those practical uh, realities of, of a smaller orchestra, obviously having someone doubling uh, in that manner uh, on wind instruments, you know, it would have been the case back in the day. And yes, as you say, well, that's that's maybe a good explanation for why we don't see um, couplings of wind instruments like we see later in the, in the classical period, well, gallant and classical periods. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. It would only be the biggest and wealthiest orchestras that could afford to have specialists on all of those instruments available all the time. Um, I guess the other thing to say about that is that uh, many top musicians were multi-instrumentalists, and so uh, some of the string players also doubled on wind instruments. So, so you might have somebody who was the mainly employed as the oboist, but when they had a piece that needed lots of strings and they didn't have an oboe in it, well, they'd just pick up the violin or the viola or whatever and, and play that instead. Uh, so there's the uh, same goes with horn players even, who are quite specialised, not trumpeters for the most part, because they were extremely specialised and didn't stoop to playing any other instruments than the trumpet. Um, but otherwise, there is a, a certain amount of, uh, of switching between instruments. I think the fact that you've mentioned trumpets there um, makes me want to jump us slightly ahead in the program. So not talk about Leclerc straight away, but actually go to Bach and the wonderful orchestral suite number four in D major that we're going to hear in this program. So there are, t there are different versions of this piece. And the version that we're going to hear with Layla uh, directing is actually the one without trumpets. So perhaps you you could tell listeners about uh, about these th this orchestral suite and and how trumpets would have been used or how they 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 are used in one particular version of it as opposed to the version that we're going to hear live in concert yeah the Bach orchestral suites are interesting because we don't know for sure what any of them what occasion any of them were written for. They would certainly have been composed for a specific occasion. Um, Bach didn't have time and nor did any other professional musician of the period to sit down and think, hmm, I, I think I'll just write a French overture today. Uh, he was much too busy composing pieces for particular events that were coming up. So it must have been for something. And the kind of thing that 
it was probably for would have been a visit from the king of Saxony, uh, the elector who did travel around his realms and came to Leipzig from time to time, even though it was not a, a town that had its own prince. Um, he would come and kind of assert his uh, authority there from time to time. And for events like the king's birthday, the, the queen's birthday, their name days, uh, and so on, they would have celebrations and also of other important events. Uh, so an example of that would be the um, anniversary of a coronation, that kind of thing. There would be um, special performances put on. And so Bach's ceremonial uh, orchestral suites would be exactly the kind of thing to fulfill that purpose. Now, if you were doing ceremonial music of that kind, one of the things that made it sound ceremonial and special, and particularly was suited if you were playing outdoors, as they did from time to time for uh, large celebrations, uh, trumpets and drums were the thing that added that real sense of occasion to the music. Because they were associated with royal courts and with the military, uh, they produced that kind of uh, spectacular bright sound that is very loud and will carry, uh, and it creates the atmosphere that was associated with um, kings who would process through the streets preceded by their corps of trumpeters playing fanfares and so forth. All of that kind of sound world is evoked by having trumpets and timpani in the music. Now, if you, uh, if you wanted to play that same music indoors, uh, it didn't always work so well to have three trumpets and so on. It could just be pretty loud and uh, uh, and also it was expensive to get in all those extra musicians. But what they could do and very often did do not only for trumpets, but uh, if you wanted to imitate oboes or whatever, you could get a different instrument to do it. So if you have all the the uh, the oboes and the violins and so forth playing music that sounds trumpetish, that has fanfares and that kind of thing. It evokes the sound world of the trumpet without needing to have the actual trumpets there. Uh, and in the same way, if you were uh, wanting to evoke a, a pastoral scene, um, well, ideally you'd use a flute or a recorder or an oboe maybe, but if you didn't have those available, well, you could play, have a violin play a melody that sounded of, of that kind and it creates the same kind of atmosphere. It's it's incredible to think, obviously, of these these different sound worlds, and that trumpets would have simply been too loud indoors. Whereas nowadays we've got these sort of largish venues where the problem is actually the almost re reversed, where you you actually have to be as loud as a trumpet or amplified to be able to hit the back of the hall because our our spaces are that much louder. But we're not necessarily talking about analogous sized spaces. We're talking about sort of more smaller chamber sort of size spaces, aren't we? Uh, yeah, we are for the most part. Um, so again, this is where it makes such a difference where you're performing. If you're outdoors, then you really need to make as much noise as you can. If you're in a, a really large indoor venue, of which there were some, uh, particularly really big churches and so forth, then you might want to have a loud sound. But then you have the converse problem in a church where it may be big, but it's so echoey that uh, if you have uh, instruments like um, trumpets uh, and that that can really kind of blast into that space, then it can really kind of muddy the sound and make it hard to hear. So there, there are all of these kind of acoustic considerations which would have been very present for the people at the time in deciding what instrumentation to use, uh, depending on uh, who the audience was, what the venue was and so forth. And we have to kind of guess some of that when we're reconstructing it and also take into account, as you say, that we're actually playing in different kinds of spaces and often bigger spaces 
Uh, and so we have to work out how to make the music create the effect that it was intended to have when it was new, uh, but in a different kind of context. Now, similar to other music of Johann Sebastian Bach's that we've we've heard and, and listened to on the program as well, uh, this is divided, this orchestral suite is divided into a whole series of, of dance-like uh, uh, movements, as it were. Perhaps you could just take us through what we're going to hear in concert. Yeah, so it uh, is like um, his other... Uh, orchestral suites in that it starts with a movement labelled overture and that is essentially a French overture but uh, the way that Bach treats it is a bit different from the way French composers normally did. Uh, For a French composer it was simply a ceremonial kind of opening to something else and uh, typically the overture to an opera or something like that Uh, and it was reasonably short whereas for Bach in this context he's making it the centrepiece it's the ceremonial introduction to the whole thing and it carries a lot of the weight of the entire piece and is much longer uh, in each of his orchestral suites than the other movements that follow so it kind of lays down the groundwork it's, it sets out its uh, its placard in the street almost as if to say this is a big event this is an important occasion uh, but once we've got through that then we go into a series of much lighter Uh, entertaining dances. So we've got uh, two bourrées, which are kind of um, more rustic, lively kind of dances, Uh, a stately gavotte, uh, which has a very distinct rhythm. Uh, It's in uh, a duple time, so you're counting essentially in in 4-4, but it always starts with two upbeats. So instead of going one, two, three, four, the gavotte always starts with three four one two three four one two and it gives it a very particular kind of sound which you can always go ah that's a gavotte so when you hear that sound then you know it's a gavotte uh, we have two minuets which are uh, triple time dances it's the probably the predecessor of the waltz which comes in the 19th century and finally a movement called rejoicing and this is the kind of climactic movement we get at the end short sharp and very exciting which um, was originally used for occasions of very particular kinds of royal ceremony and uh, and rejoicing um, but by this time had become one of the kinds of movements you could put into a suite like this uh, as a great way of finishing it off. And it certainly is very ceremonial and, and a, a light-hearted and happy way to actually end a program, isn't it? You know, this, this, this movement's a, a delightful sort of final movement to, this, to the suite. Yeah, and Bach knew what he was doing, I think. You know, he's very experienced by this stage with all kinds of different music. Although we think of him so much as a church music composer, he'd also written a lot of instrumental music, orchestral pieces and so forth. And uh, although he didn't write for the theatre as such, uh, he's immersed in a a culture which is very theatrical. And I think uh, there's something of that in the way that he finishes this off with a, a rousing finale. Now, this is going to be uh, a rousing finale without the trumpets and and, uh, timpani uh, because we're not doing the outdoors version. We're doing the more introspective, if you can think of it that way. It's not really (laughs) introspective, but uh, uh, yes, the the more intimate sounding uh, chamber music uh, version. Um, So a wonderful recording that I've found for you listeners, um, which you should definitely look at um, on YouTube as well as it's available there by the the 
Netherlands Bark Society as part of their All of Bark project, uh, is led by Lars Ulrich Mortensen at the Harpsichord. Now, have you had the pleasure of, of hearing the Netherlands Bark Society uh, um, or Lars uh, before yourself, Alan? I haven't heard them live, though uh, that's one of my ambitions in life is to get to some of their concerts in the Netherlands and uh, when they occasionally tour. It's just a fabulous ensemble and uh, sort of marvellous recordings of um, the St Matthew Passion and so forth. Uh, which are, And if you look carefully on their videos, you may spot some people who are also members of the Brandenburg Orchestra who occasionally appear. Um, Matthew Greco, the violinist, for example, plays with them from time to time. That's right. And in this particular recording, we have Shunsuke Sato leading the leading as as concert master, um, with whom uh, listeners will be familiar. But also in the viola section, there's Deirdre Dowling, uh, and on violone, James Munro, who actually performed um, regularly with the Brandenburg during its during its earlier uh, earlier years. So quite a lot of uh, crossover here between Netherlands Bach Society and 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 Brandenburg that's also worth celebrating. That's right. And it shows, I guess, how significant many of our Australian specialist period instrument players are on the world scene. Somebody like Emma Black, who's coming back to play oboe, is uh, a major international artist now. And uh, a number of our of players from the orchestra uh, have that kind of international experience, which is great to see. So I'm going to skip ahead and actually go to the last thing on the program, which will be the rejoicing, réjouissance, the final movement of this suite number four in D major. Now, as you mentioned, Alan, Bach certainly was a composer of a lot of instrumental music and was a, a very fine uh, violinist as where, 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 well, has written some extremely fine violin music, um, some of which is going to feature on the program, but there's a story behind this particular violin concerto in D minor. Perhaps you'd like to tell us a little bit about this work. Yeah, um, Bach was in fact a, a fine violinist himself, and I think that shows in the way that he writes for the instrument. Uh, again, as we were saying, many 
musicians at the time were multi multi instrumentalists, and in a way, you you had to be in order to uh, understand what the other musicians were doing, and particularly for composers to understand how to write for them. So Handel, for example, studied the not only the keyboard, but also the oboe and the violin. And uh, Bach was a really good violinist, uh, certainly in his youth, as well as being a, a fabulous keyboard virtuoso. So it's not entirely surprising that there's a connection between those two things. The version of this concerto that we know today that's come down to us as a complete score is actually as a harpsichord concerto in a version which he appears to have made for the period towards the end of his life in Leipzig when he was the director of a kind of music society, the Collegium Musicum um, of Leipzig, which put together the top amateur and professional musicians of the city to do weekly concerts. And during the trade fairs, they even performed three or four times a week. So they were quite busy. And this is on top of his uh, his kind of day job, as it were, at the St. Thomas's School and Church. Uh, but what he appears to have done is to, rather than writing a completely new piece from scratch, uh, and again, he was very busy, uh, so it made sense for him to, what appears to have happened is that he reused a violin concerto that he'd written years before, which nobody there would have heard. So rather than have it go to waste, it made perfect sense to arrange that for the harpsichord for himself or possibly one of his sons to play. But it does mean that when we look at the piece, um, you can kind of analyze the harpsichord concerto and see that the kind of way that it's composed, the shapes of the melodies and so forth, are not really what you would typically expect to see for harpsichord. They're in fact the shapes and sounds that you would expect for the violin. And so it uh, makes it pretty clear that yes, it was actually in its original version of Violin Concerto. It's not that hard to reconstruct the violin version from the harpsichord version and um, turn it back into a violin concerto. And it's interesting that you mention this um, just after we've spoken about oboes imitating trumpets and this sort of thing, because sometimes it's uh, a compositional idea to obviously use an instrument to imitate the sound or depict something else. But in this instance, it's actually, it's, it's not a case of that, but it's rather the reuse of idiomatic violin material for a harpsichord concerto. Yeah, that's right. And it means that the challenge for the player then, which may well have been Bach himself, is to make the music work in that way, to make it sound like a harpsichord piece when actually it was originally written for another instrument. And he does that very effectively in the way that he writes it, so that when you hear it on harpsichord, yeah, it sounds like a good harpsichord piece. But if you kind of take a step back from it and uh, hear it on the violin, then it really makes sense as a violin piece. And uh, it is, yes, a marvellous um, piece of music and, and really a virtuosic one for the violin. And the reconstruction of a, a concerto like this for violin, where obviously the original manuscript is lost, even though we have this harpsichord version, how do players go about doing that? How does that process happen? Um, you know, besides obviously looking and analysing the shapes and, and then trying to see what fits with the violin, how do we go about doing that? Well, this is where musicologists come in handy. That's, uh, <laughs> so I'll put my, uh, uh, my hand up for the musicological community. Uh, so it takes some analysis, of course, and pulling the piece apart and figuring out how it was put together. So you're sort of reverse engineering it, basically. 
to try and figure out how it was created. Um, in a case like this, uh, in the harpsichord version, the melody is essentially in the right hand and the left hand of the, the keyboard is mostly playing the bass. Um, and so it's not too hard to see what the original violin melody was. Uh, and then it's a matter of just taking it back to the violin and working out exactly how it fits. Uh, does it, uh, you know, fit under uh, under the hand, as it were, uh, on the violin? And in fact, it does. So there may be a few adaptations that have to be made here and there to take it back to what feels comfortable and works on the violin. Um, uh, that is to undo anything that Bach may have done to make it feel comfortable and work uh, well on the harpsichord. Um, and by doing that, then we can get back to a piece which really does sound like a fantastic violin piece. And indeed, this piece has so much in it. I think it's it's one of my favourite pieces of of Bach's uh, of all time. Actually, the 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 theme itself uh, in the opening allegro, I just I just I fell in love with it immediately. Um, so perhaps you can tell us what we're in for in terms of this particular piece. Ah, well, it's a really powerful piece. It's in D minor, so it doesn't have the kind of uh, bright, lively sound that we get in major key concertos, but Bach likes his D minor and he uses it to create a kind of dark, serious uh, sound. Um, it has a, a, quite a passionate kind of sound. And the, for a good violinist to get hold of this piece, it really gives them material to work with to uh, create an intense kind of experience. Um, and it is one of the things that's really noticeable about this kind of music by Bach, but also by some of the other composers on our program, that the music is challenging, it's technically difficult, it's virtuosic, it makes us almost kind of gasp with uh, wonder at you know, what the violinist can do. Uh, but at the same time, it's really expressive. All of that is in the service of creating the atmosphere, the passion, the emotion that the piece is supposed to project. And this is part of the aesthetics of the period. Uh, it's all about rhetoric, the art of communication, of persuasion. And the piece should reach out and grab us and persuade us to feel what he wants us to feel. Now, one of the players that I've enjoyed uh, listening to, because unfortunately I don't have a recording featuring Layla herself uh, for this piece, uh, but he, but one of the players that um, that listeners would probably be familiar with is Dmitry Sinkovsky, who really goes uh, very passionate about <laughs> and gets digs into this D minor like you wouldn't believe, um, playing with La Voce Strumentale. Um, so this record, this was recorded in 2017. I'm going to put on the opening allegro because it is actually my favourite. So I'm going to <laughs> put it on for listeners now. Um, but uh, then perhaps we can continue talking about um, about violin and, and and the instrument, and then leading us into Leclerc, which is going to be a fantastic concerto as well. So for listeners, this is Johann Sebastian Bach's violin concerto in D minor, BWV 1052R.
perhaps you could tell us more about the violin and its role within the Baroque period, within this particular period of, of, of music. Uh, you know, it's it's such a staple of, of music and, and music making in the Western world today. Uh, but but how did it uh, come to be? And, and obviously, why would someone like Bach have been writing a, a violin concerto of this nature? Yeah, it's uh, absolutely crucial, really, in the music of this period. It's the time from the mid-17th century onwards, particularly when the violin comes to real prominence as the dominant instrument. And I think the reason that that happens through the 17th century is because uh, the, the instruments that had been, uh, the solo instruments that had been most prominent during, say, the 16th century, tended to be things like the, uh, the viol family, the recorders, um, and they were instruments designed mostly for playing in ensembles, uh, playing polyphonic music, um, the kind of thing that we hear in motets and madrigals and so forth, where the parts all interweave with each other to create uh, a well-matched homogenous kind of sound. Um, and so you would have a set of instruments of different sizes, just like you have human voices in soprano, alto, tenor, bass, where you would have recorders as descant, treble, alt, um, tenor and bass and so forth. Uh, but those instruments, although they blend very well with voices, they're not so well suited to imitating the passionate kind of music that we get from the 17th century onwards, from the period of Monteverdi and Cavalli and so forth, right up to the time that we're talking about here with Handel and Bach and uh, Zelenka and so forth. It's the violin that really can do the kinds of things that voices can do with different kinds of tone colour, loud and soft, wide leaps and virtuosic runs and so on. And in that way, of course, the violin can do even more that voices can easily do. So we get to a position in this period, in the early uh, 18th century, where voices uh, start to imitate violins. And this is where we get some of the real virtuoso um, operatic music, for example. Um, so there's this kind of interplay between the violin and the voice going on through all of this period. And uh, a lot of that makes the violin, therefore, the instrument on which if you were going to be a, a celebrated soloist, you are likely to be a violin player much more than anything else. The orchestra is led by a violinist. Um, violinists, the first violinist was often actually the director of the orchestra, uh, sometimes in collaboration with the harpsichordist or could be they could be doing either um, and as we've seen Bach and other leading uh, musicians played both instruments if you were going to play two instruments it would be the harpsichord and the violin so violin is right at the heart of all of this music um, and uh, it's both the foundation of the orchestra and the leading solo instrument so when Vivaldi writes concertos of his uh, 500 odd concertos uh, more than half of them are for solo violin um, because it was the virtuoso instrument. And so we get that in uh, a lot of the music of the period, in particular the Leclerc concerto that we're going to hear on this program. And incidentally, it is an interesting thing that it's fairly unusual with the orchestra that we have two successive programs, each with a guest violinist. Uh, so we had just before the wonderful Teotim Longwadesfart, and now we have uh, yet again a, a wonderful violin soloist directing the orchestra. And uh, it actually, it, it seems a bit surprising to us maybe today, but this is absolutely what we would have expected to hear in the 18th century because the violin is so prominent as a solo instrument. It is, of course, also to do with the fact that this was a concert we were hoping to hear in 2021 when everything went haywire. And so it's marvellous, marvellous to be able to, to hear it now.
That's right. And um, and as one of the last sort of COVID hangover concert series in a, in a, in a way, um, it's a shame that we've had to wait so long to hear Layla because she is such a fantastic uh, player and, um, and also will bring so much to the direction of the orchestra. In fact, I know that the orchestra are going to relish this opportunity to learn and to build and to grow as musicians. Yeah, and it's also a wonderful opportunity for us to hear two such fantastic violinists in close proximity one in, in consecutive series and also playing rather different kinds of music. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, this is all of the, the virtuoso stuff of the 18th century um, and not your standard uh, Vivaldi concertos, um, but here this really particularly is really interesting. So we've got the Bach uh, that we were just talking about, but also the very interesting concerto by Leclerc. Uh, and that gives us a, another sense of this kind of cosmopolitanism that's going on. Um, you know, we're talking about how Zelenka comes from Bohemia. He works in Dresden. Um, Handel, of course, famously a German musician who studied in Italy and then wrote Italian music for an English audience in England uh, using a French style from time to time. So he's kind of the ultimate cosmopolitan in a way. And we get something uh, not quite as exotic as that with Leclerc, but he is a French uh, musician who studied with an Italian teacher and took up the Italian virtuoso style of violin playing and took that back to France. And so we get this interesting hybrid kind of style where he takes essentially an Italian style, but adapts it to French audiences, to French ears, and introduces a new kind of virtuoso violin playing style, which had not been heard much in France and certainly not by French players. So with Jean-Marie Leclerc, we really have a, a seminal figure in violin repertoire within French violin repertoire. He really is the first to break away from probably the more more... French style of violin playing that we heard and, and embrace that uh, that Italianate style, similar to what we heard in the program with Teotim with someone like Nicola Matteis, who sort of brought the Italianate violin style to Scotland and London and, you know, proponed it uh, over there. So tell us about a bit more about Jean-Marie Leclerc and, and obviously learnt from Italian violinists, as, as you said, but how his career and, uh, and his music making had an influence in France. Yeah, he's... Uh and it makes an interesting kind of comparison with the other composers we're hearing on this program because he is almost a generation younger. He was born in 1697. The others were born in the uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, so he's just uh, a little bit later on in the, the style that he's learning as a young man. Also interesting because he actually started out as a dancer. And this makes perfect sense from the point of view of French music because it was so much tied up with dance. But interesting that uh, he studied as a dancer and violinist initially, from uh, which he was taught by his father. He also played the bass viol, which was the the uh, elegant French instrument. But he moved internationally, and uh, by the age of twenty-two, he was the leading dancer and the ballet master at the Royal Theatre in Turin, Torino, in northern Italy. So he has. Uh, got that Italian international experience already. He has the experience as a dancer as well as as a violinist. But it was that experience of being in Italy and studying with Giovanni Battista Somis, who was one of the top violinists and a student himself of Corelli, that made Leclerc think, okay, this is what I really want to do. I want to be a violinist. <clears throat> and so he uh, studied seriously there and moved on from 
from being primarily a dancer to being primarily a violinist and made his debut in Paris in 1727. So when he was 30. So he'd taken a while to, to kind of develop himself as a violinist. But by the time he did, he made quite a splash because he was a super violin player and played in a way that they had not heard much of in France at this time. And I'm sure that time in Italy, um, you know, we're talking about a, a, a Parisian debut in 1727. That's two years after the publication, the first publication of The Four Seasons, for example. You know, there, there would have been a lot of violin concertos floating around Italy and he would have been exposed to, to, to this sort of writing for sure. Yeah, that's right. And it was a time when that kind of uh, virtuoso Italian music was starting to catch on in France. There was more interest in it. Uh, than there had been earlier when French music had been considered to be very separate from Italian music. The, the, in the end of the 17th century, the French had tended to consider Italian music a little bit crass somehow. It wasn't as sophisticated, as restrained, as noble as French music. <clears throat> but by this time, they were kind of getting on the bandwagon a little bit, we might say, I suppose, with uh, the new kind of Italian music. And so the music of Vivaldi starts to be heard a bit in France. The Four Seasons does become popular in, in France, particularly the Spring Concerto. Uh, and so in a way, I think Leclerc is probably in the right place at the right time to be introducing this kind of music in France, and particularly because he is himself a Frenchman, so that it's not some exotic foreigner coming in and playing this foreign music. It's a French player coming in and also composing his own concertos in uh, an essentially Italian style. But that's something I think that probably a French audience could relate to uh, more easily than just having a foreign soloist come in as a bit of a novelty. Here is some, someone who is himself a Frenchman. He has the background in dance, the whole French culture. Uh, and now he can show us a new style, what could be a new style of French violin music. And in fact, does go on to be that. He's uh, often considered to be the founder of the French school of violin playing, which goes on to be so influential in the 19th century. So the violin concerto we're going to hear Layla perform on the program, uh, she has actually recorded uh, previously, is from uh, Leclerc's Opus 10. Um, it's uh, actually Opus 10 number 5. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, this collection of, of violin concertos and, and roughly when in, in Leclerc's lifetime that it, um, that it was written, composed and published? Well, it's, uh, this is from his second set of violin concertos. Uh, they were published in 1745. Uh, and they do follow the essentially Italian pattern that had been established by, particularly by Vivaldi by this time. Uh, so the influence of Vivaldi's concertos is really clear in the structure of fast, slow, fast, uh, three movements order. Um, and uh, it also has some of the characteristics of Vivaldi's style of music with the driving rhythms and uh, um, sequences and his use of repeated notes as an effect, uh, which is very much part of Vivaldi's style. Um, but he also introduces some features that sound a little bit more French, like tirades, which are sort of rushing scales that drive us up to the to the main beat. Um, and uh, he even goes probably beyond Vivaldi in some respects with the degree of virtuosity. He was clearly a, an astonishing player himself. And uh, we've had one or two Leclerc concertos um, on the program on previous programs. Uh, I think there was one played by our concertmaster, Sean Lee Chen, which um, some listeners may remember, which was just 
are kind of shockingly difficult, you might say. Um, and so this is part of the, the aesthetic of Leclerc's music, I think, that it picks up this kind of thrilling style of Italian music and actually takes it, if anything, even further in the direction of, of this kind of exciting virtuosity. It's quite interesting in that um, proponents of the Italian style who are so popular today, as in Bach himself, um, but also Leclerc, you know, they, they by nature of potentially not being Italian, but, but learning about this and imbuing these uh, Italianate styles with other elements, other cultural elements, they really do sometimes take the, 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 the form and, and push it in a way that makes it even more incredible. Yeah, that's right. And it is interesting to see that happening here in the, the kind of the reverse direction, in a sense, in that um, the the thing that's most recognisable, I guess, in this kind of crossover of musical cultures is when we hear French overtures in the music of Italian, well, very, very rarely in Italian composers, but particularly in uh, German and uh, Eastern European composers writing in this uh, kind of French style. Um, but they don't actually write it the same way as French composers do, as we saw with Bach and also with Handel. They kind of adapt it and turn it into something a little bit different. And we can kind of see that happening in reverse direction here with Leclerc taking an Italian style but putting his own stamp on it and a, a kind of slightly French angle on what was essentially an Italian style of music. And I guess all of that is showing us that where in the late 17th century, the Italian and French styles had been considered very distinct with hardly any crossover between them. It's in this period of the 1720s, 30s, 40s, we're starting to get a kind of convergence happening again, which in the second half of the 18th century will lead on to the style of people like Haydn and Mozart and so on, who really uh, take all of these elements and, and combine them to give us the very rich kind of uh, pan-European music during that period where the stylistic differences have mostly, not entirely, but largely disappeared into a kind of common European style. In terms of what you'd uh, like to share with listeners today, we have a, a, a wonderful recording that actually would not have existed if we'd have been doing this podcast in 2021 because Leila um, had uh, her Leclerc Concerti per Violino, uh, Violino album published in 2022. So, you know, lucky for us, we were able to play this featuring the La Cetra Barocco Orchestra Basel. And uh, yes, uh, we have, we're spot for choice. Three beautiful movements, Alan. What would you like to share with listeners today? Oh, let's go the third movement, I think, for this one. So this is Leila Shaig, listeners, playing the Allegro, the concluding movement of uh, Jean-Marie Leclerc's Violin Concerto in E minor, Opus 10, number 5.
as I bring the music down, Alan, there's a lot to unpack in this movement. I mean, it, it's fantastic move, uh, music, and it, and the the what you were talking about with Leclerc having studied as a dancer makes perfect sense to me here. So, w- what things are you hearing, and what would you like to point out for listeners? Yeah, as you say, there's a lot going on this in this. Um, one thing that strikes me about it is that. Um, it sounds almost like the opening ritornello of an opera aria. I keep expecting the voice to come in, but of course when it does, it's the violin. And so that ties back nicely to what we were saying before about how the violin and the voice have this strong connection during this period. And violins um, were often, violinists were aiming to imitate the sound of a voice. Uh, and in fact, it was often written in many of the books about how to play on any instrument. They would say the, the highest achievement for any instrumentalist is to make their instrument sound like a voice and that's i think part of what's going on here as you say it does have that wonderful dance-like feel and that does make perfect sense of leclerc himself being uh, an excellent dancer one of the other things that i think we can hear going on there is every now and then you get a little bit of kind of drone going on in the, the background little bagpipey kind of sound and i think what's going on there is that it's a, a reference to the pastoral style so we're just getting a little bit of a hint of nymphs and shepherds and uh, and shady groves and all those sorts of things. So that maybe that also helps to account for the way that the music seems to just kind of move between light and shade a little bit, as if the clouds are going over and then they disappear again. And uh, so it's very clever kind of amalgamation of uh, essentially an Italian style, but with some of those little inflections which um, seem to to belong to your kind of French sensibility. So there's a little bit almost of the Four Seasons kind of sound of depicting the landscape there, I think, and a, a pastoral scene, uh, but in a very delicate way, which perhaps goes with his French background. And I, I quite like how um, that that dichotomy between maybe a more pastoral concerto that could have, you know, been a movement that was simply pastoral, but but here it's not the case. The dichotomy between the pastoral sound is, is and the and the more operatic uh, feel of, of of some of this is um, is so simply uh, personified in that driving sort of repeated bass notes. You know, though that that's what really keeps the 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 tension there within within the movement. Yeah, and that's again one of the things that comes uh, particularly from Vivaldi's style that he did more and probably better than anybody else at the time, is creating that sense of uh, of driving us forward through the music. It's partly the harmonic structure where it feels like the harmonies are, are, are stepping forward in a purposeful way and they arrive somewhere that feels just right, as if we, we know where we're going and then we arrive there. Uh, but Part of that is also done by the way that he uses rhythm in the strings. And, and one of the, the characteristics of the violin and, and the other violin family instruments, the cello and the viola and so forth, is that the, the kind of attack that you get with the bow gives it a real kind of punchy sound. And it's also very good at repeating notes, um, uh, sometimes very quickly, so that you can get that sort of sound, which, um, which Vivaldi does quite often, uh, leaping... Um, motifs both in the melody and sometimes in the bass which uh, can give it kind of uh, a lot of fire and and energy 
Uh, and all of those things contribute to that typical late Baroque sound that we've that became almost so uh, almost a cliche because it was so successful and so much taken up by so many composers uh, that feel of the harmony driving forward the rhythm driving forward that's absolutely the italian the vivaldian influence and this is i guess an example of the way we can see that uh, spreading out through european music so that it becomes one of the characteristics that uh, is almost defining for the music of the mid and, and late 18th century I must admit, Alan, I've really enjoyed all of the Leclerc that I've heard. Why is it that uh, we simply don't hear more of Jean-Marie Leclerc's music? And this is like such a perfect example of, of fantastic music. Like, uh, it, Why is it we don't hear more of him today? Good question. And I'm not quite sure of the answer to that, but I would suspect that it probably has to do again with uh, the way that the, the canon works. You know, the, um, the idea that there are certain sort of seminal pieces of music that everyone knows, which are considered to be the great works with kind of capital G and a capital W. And that includes, you know, most of Bach and a lot of Handel uh, and increasingly um, Vivaldi concertos and so forth. But um, there are so many of these other really excellent composers who uh, for often reasons that are essentially accidents of history. Uh, their music has not been in the right place at the right time to, uh, including in our current reception, to uh, get to be known in the same way. Um, often it has to do with the regard that we have for particular composers just for uh, historical reasons. For example, Handel, uh, we now know as a wonderful opera composer, but uh, his operas were not known at all essentially from the time when he wrote them through until the mid 20th century when they started to be revived what the music that people knew was the oratorios and particularly of course messiah and a few of the occasional instrumental pieces like the fireworks music and the water music which were at the time were just written for one particular occasion um a few of them were made arrangements of that people could play for themselves at home and so forth but they were not they didn't stay in the repertoire it was the oratorios that stayed in the repertoire, and that's why Handel is the famous English composer. Um, J.S. Bach, his music disappeared pretty much out of the repertoire, but then it was rediscovered by Mendelssohn in the 19th century, and Bach became the great originating German composer who was seen as important not only for his own music, but because he was the precursor to Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms and all of that. Um, and so it's the way that particular composers and their music are taken up for reasons that suit us as listeners at particular times, according to our own historical circumstances that often dictate why particular music is taken up at a certain time and not at another. And so maybe we're now at a time when the moment is right for Leclerc to uh, come back into our, our knowledge as one of the really important composers of this period. Well, listeners have heard it here first that uh, uh, that uh, that Leila Shaikh is one of the best proponents of Leclerc's music, and if you continue to follow her career, I'm sure there'll be plenty more Leclerc to enjoy as well. And that is something really to look forward to. But, of course, in the first instance, we're looking forward to hearing her play Leclerc live in this upcoming concert, and that's, I'm sure, going to be a great treat. Now, what is your favourite part of this concert that we're just about to hear, Poet of the Violin? Um, what, what are you most looking forward to? Oh, that's hard to choose, isn't it? There's so much wonderful stuff uh, on this programme. Um, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing the Bach Violin Concerto because uh, it's one that we don't get to hear as much as some of other, his other instrumental music and because it's a re, 
uh, a recreation from that harpsichord version. Wonderful, wonderful piece. Um, and also I'm looking forward to hearing the Zelenka because uh, he's another of these composers, wonderful composer, whose music we don't get to hear enough and just a very entertaining, uh, clever piece um, that is going to open the program. I'm really f- looking forward to hearing that. Well, thank you, Alan, again for your time today. It's been wonderful talking in, uh, about some of these composers we don't often get to hear enough of, and, uh, and I'm sure everyone will agree that uh, there's a lot to enjoy in this program. Yeah, it is a wonderful mixture of some uh, marvellous familiar pieces and from familiar composers and uh, a couple of really terrific pieces from composers we don't get to hear enough of. So uh, uh, it's going to be a treat. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music and your host, Huron Zani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. 